13. 1 Corinthians 13, that's where we'll find the text that we want to look at together for a few moments this morning. Appreciate all of you being here in attendance today, and it's good to look out and see the, the faces of several visitors here with us today, and, and I hope the time that we all spend here together will be strengthening and uh, edifying and beneficial for each and every one of us. As a child, I remember on a couple of occasions, we took brief vacations to Eureka Springs, Arkansas. Some of you have possibly been there. And one of the things that is a tourist attraction there, we never went to it, but it's heavily advertised and millions of people over the decades have gone to see it, is an outdoor passion play that they put on in the summer every year. There's a story that's told about a fellow who was cast to play Jesus in that play at a particular time. And that story goes that as this fellow was carrying his cross up the hill one day, that for whatever reason, a heckler started to bother him. And you wouldn't expect something like that at a passion play. But he started making fun of him, shouting insults at him, and before long this guy had had all of it that he could take. And he dropped the cross and he walked over to the fellow and he just punched him right in the face. Well, the director took him aside after that and he said, listen, I, I understand that that guy was a nuisance, but we can't have Jesus punching people in the face. Jesus never retaliated. We can't have you doing anything like that again. He promised he wouldn't. But the next day, that heckler was back and he was worse than ever. And the actor playing Jesus took it as long as he could and finally, he did it again. He dropped his cross and he walked over there and he just knocked the guy right out. And the director said, that's it. I'm going to have to let you go. I'm sorry, but we can't have Jesus punching people in the face. He, the actor said, please, I really, really need this job. I promise I can keep it all under control. And the director decided to give him one more chance. So the next day he was carrying his cross up the street, and sure enough, that heckler was back again. He was shouting insults at him. He was making fun of him. You could tell the actor was getting angrier and angrier. He was trying to keep it together. His fists were clenched and he was gritting his teeth and finally he looked at the guy and he said I'll see you after the resurrection <laughs> the point of that story is that sometimes it's difficult for those of us who profess to be Christians to behave like Christians we try to carry our crosses but if someone crosses us, we're all too eager to drop it and to behave just like the rest of the world. And yet, Scripture tells us over and over and over again that we're to be people who exercise love in all of our relationships. Listen to what Paul says, Romans chapter 12, verse 18, If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Or again, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2, be completely humble and gentle. Be
be patient, bearing with one another in love. Again, the Hebrews writer, chapter 12, verse 14 says, Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. All these passages and others that we could add say essentially the same thing. It may be hard sometimes. Not everyone is lovable, right? We know that. But as much as it lies in you, if it's possible at all, we're to live in peace and in harmony with everyone. This morning, we want to begin a a short series from that great chapter on love, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And I want us to turn our attention in particular to the first three verses. Now, at the end of chapter 12, Paul really headlines what's coming up here. And it's a shame sometimes the chapter divisions in our Bibles come in unfortunate places. But he says at the end of verse 31, I will show you a still more excellent way. That is, I'm going to show you the best way in every situation, the way of love. And Paul then lists five things that Christians consider to be really important. That is, these things aren't unimportant. They're actually very important. And yet, love is more important than each and every one of these. So first of all, in verse 1, Paul says that love is more important than speaking in tongues. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, if we were making this list today, we might not put speaking in tongues here. We might not think of that as particularly important in our context. But they were extremely important in the early church. You remember in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, God poured out the Spirit on the apostles, and they were empowered with the ability to speak in languages that they'd never learned before. And that's what gathered that crowd on that day for Peter to preach to. People heard these men speaking in their own native tongues, that is, in the vernacular. What in the world could this mean? So speaking in tongues was critical to the foundation of the church. And yet here Paul says that if God gave him the gift to speak in every human language, not only that, not merely every human language, if he gave him the ability to speak in the mysterious secret language of angels, if he had that gift but he didn't have love, he'd be no more than a noisy gong, a clinging cymbal. Now, the sound of gongs or cymbals would have been extremely familiar to the Corinthians because they were used in the pagan cults there in Corinth. And if you read chapter 12 of this letter through chapter 14, you'll find that the Corinthians thought that speaking in tongues was more important than just about anything else. They all wanted to have that gift. That was a mark of higher spirituality. Everyone wanted to be able to speak in a tongue. But Paul says that that gift, without love, is as worthless, as empty, as vain, as hollow, as worshiping the pagan gods. It's just noise. In verse 2, Paul says, Love is more important than knowledge. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, but have not love, 
I'm nothing. Knowledge was another one of those things that the Corinthians liked to revel in. You can read about that all through the letter. It comes out in several passages. But in context here, when we're talking about prophetic powers and mysteries, we're likely referring to special divine knowledge. You know, the application is broader than that. It's all-encompassing of knowledge. If it includes divine knowledge, then how much more so the lesser things that we might know? You can know everything. All that there is to know about physics or law or medicine, psychology, theology, any other ology that you want to stack up there. You can know everything. But if you don't have love, you're nothing. There are a lot of problems in our world, and we often say that the solution is more education. We just need to educate people better, and those issues will go away. Sometimes that may be true. I'm 100% in favor of more education. But you know, consider what Paul says back in chapter 8, verse 1. The Corinthians say, all of us possess knowledge. That shows the premium they place upon it. Then Paul says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. We say that people need more knowledge. And in some cases, that's true. Especially, they need more knowledge of God. But what we need even more than that is love. Especially love that's demonstrated by those who have that knowledge of God. Thirdly, Paul says, love is more important than faith. If I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I'm nothing. Faith is extremely significant in Scripture. We know as Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2 that we're saved by grace through faith. We know as the Hebrews writer puts it in Hebrews chapter 11 that without faith it's impossible to please God. If we're going to come to Him, we must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who diligently seek Him. And I expect that everyone here this morning has faith, at least in something. But that's really the question. What is your faith? What do you believe for certain this morning? Do you believe that God exists? Do you believe that He's the creator of this entire universe? Do you believe that Jesus Christ came into this world to die for our sins? but that God raised him from the grave on the third day? Do you believe that he now reigns at the right hand of God and that one day he's coming again? Do you believe that Christ sent the Spirit that he's given as a gift to Christians as the, the seal of our inheritance, the sign of our sonship, of being children of God? If you believe all those things, that's wonderful. You're to be commended for believing all of that, because all of that is true. But even if you believe all the right doctrines all the way down the line, but you don't have love, you're nothing. I've known several people who were exactly right in their doctrinal commitments, all of the things they believed and that they taught, and if you didn't believe them, just ask them, because they were the most quick to talk about it. 
They were divisive, combative. All they wanted to do was de- debate. I'm concerned that people like that aren't demonstrating the love that Paul talks about here. Their faith may be right, but I don't know about their love. The priest and the Levite in the parable of the Good Samaritan are an example of this. You know, as far as I know, they had the right doctrine. They had faith in some sense. They believed in God. And yet, because they didn't have love for their neighbor as they ought, they walked on by on the other side of the road and left a man to bleed out in the ditch. I'm reminded of what Paul says in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 6. The only thing that counts is faith working through love. Love is more important next than generosity. If I give away all I have, but have not love, I gain nothing. You notice, this isn't if I give away a little. It's not even if I give a lot. If I give everything, if I empty the checking account, if I empty my retirement account, if I liquidate all of my investments, if I sell the house, if I cash in the insurance policy, if I give everything up but the clothes on my back and I'm standing on the street corner because I have nothing, I've given it all to the poor, but I don't have love, then all of that was worthless. I gained nothing. Generosity isn't enough. You a generous person? We probably, all of us, have people that call us from time to time to try to have us donate to worthwhile causes. Maybe you encounter people on the street. Maybe there are charities that you donate to on a regular basis. And all of those things are are good. Perhaps you give to those. Perhaps you've helped out those who are needy in the past. But why do you do that? Why do you give? Why are you generous? Is it because you just heard a sermon on it? Is it because you're afraid that God will be angry with you if you don't? Is it because you want to impress other people so that they can see that you give? Do we feel guilty? If we don't give, is that what it is? Or do we give just out of a basic desire to be charitable, out of humanitarian reasons? All of those are wrong. That's what Paul says. Because those are all ultimately self-centered. They're all about benefiting us in one way or another. And when love is absent, our giving is empty. Our giving has to be motivated by love, love for God, gratitude for what He's done for us. I liked what River said in his prayer this morning over the collection when he talked about gratitude and love even for the things as simple as the ground that we walk on, the air that we breathe. That's exactly what we're talking about. The motivation for our giving has to be love, love for God, love for His people. Finally, Paul says, love is more important than accomplishments. If I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. He's talking here about martyrdom. 
That is being so committed to God that we're willing even to give up our lives, willing to die for the faith. Would you be willing to do that? Now, most of us, fortunately, in our day and age and in this country, are not likely to be called to do that. But let's put it on a more modest level of commitment and accomplishment. Even if you go to the assemblies of the church every time the doors are open, even if you read your Bible every day, even if you pray as you alt, even if you do all the things that a Christian is supposed to do, but that's not motivated by love, it's worthless. If you're just doing it out of obligation, if you're just checking off the boxes that you think are required of a Christian, that's not what God wants. Love is more important than speaking in tongues. Love is more important than knowledge. Love is more important than faith. Love is more important than generosity. Love is more important than anything that we might accomplish for the kingdom of God. Love is important. You understand that? And in fact, I think it's a good deal more important than we often realize. Jesus says in words that many of you will remember, John chapter 13, verse 24, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. As I've loved you, so you also love one another. And then he goes on to say that by this shall all men know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. This is the badge of our discipleship. This is how the world sees that we're followers of Jesus. And I want you to note here, note this well, this is not a suggestion, this is a commandment. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. That is, this is something we can do, something we can will to do, something we can actively choose to do. See, we tend to think that love is something that's just out of our control. We fall in love. We fall out of love. It's like falling in a hole or falling out of a tree. You can't help it. It just happens to you. Our movies picture it this way, starting even with Disney princess movies. Our niece, who's seven, was just here for this last week, and I've seen a lot of those, more than I've seen in a long time, and I can tell you that they demonstrate that. Our books teach us that. Our popular music teaches us that, and it has for years. A lot of you remember Elvis saying, I can't help falling in love with you. More recently, Alan Jackson saying, I'm in love with you, baby. I don't even know your name. That's really deep stuff there, isn't it? The Bible teaches that love is not only something that we choose, it's something that we can control. It's something that is completely within our power. And Jesus commands us to love one another. I can will to love you. And you can will to love me. It's not a hopeless situation. What kind of love are we talking about here? In Philippians chapter 2, Verse 4, Paul says that we all need to have the mind of Christ within us. 
And part of that, being Christ-like, having his mind in us, is loving others like Jesus loved others. And Paul actually tells us in that same context what that means. Each of you should look not to his own interest, but to the interest of others. Love becomes unselfish. I'm not just looking out for myself, I'm looking out for you. And in fact, I put your interest ahead of my interest. That's what love is. And we can apply that in several different ways. What if we love like that in our families? There are several different families represented here today, and I want to ask you, what if just one person, just one person, from each family here today decided to go home and to love like this? Start with your spouse, for instance. You ought to love your wife. You ought to love your husband, first and foremost. And you ought to be kinder, gentler, more tender toward them, even when, for lack of a better term, they're a jerk. Maybe especially when they're a jerk. I say that as someone who's sometimes a jerk. <laughs> That's what is needed most. Can you see how that would affect the atmosphere of the home? No sharp words between each other. Their interests are just as important, more important than yours. What if we let that sort of love flow into the workplace? What if the people we worked with could see from our actions and not just from our words that Jesus Christ was Lord of our life? Maybe you have a boss that's really hard to deal with. Or maybe you work with some people who are really worldly-minded and they know you're a Christian and they, they get on you about that sometimes. Jesus said we're to love our enemies. We're to pray for those who persecute us. Or as Paul puts it at the end of Romans chapter 12, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Don't be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. What if we put this into practice in our church family? Remember, Jesus said this is the badge of our discipleship. This is how people know that we follow him. If we have love one for another, that's the way the world knows whether or not the message that we claim to believe in and to preach and to practice is valid. If we're going to love other people the way that Jesus loved people, then we'll have compassion on others like Jesus did. You ever noticed how often as you read the gospel accounts it says he had compassion on them over and over and over again. Have you ever read a book or watched a movie and you became so immersed in it, hanging on the next word or on the next scene that you almost felt like it was happening to you, that you were experiencing this story? That's compassion. What if we could take that feeling and we could apply it in reality? It'll cause us to ask some tough questions. 
What's it like to be hurting deep down inside and to feel powerless to do anything about it and to not be able to tell anybody about it? What's it like to be sick and to know that you're not going to get well and to desperately want more than anything else to live? What's it like to be handicapped? What's it like to be a minority? What's it like to be an immigrant? What's it like to deal with domestic problems and abuse? What kind of burdens are people carrying and do we help them bear those burdens? That's what it means when Jesus talks about us loving one another the way that He loves us. is I've loved you, so you also must love one another. I think we can illustrate this as we close with a story about David Lipscomb. That's a name that may be familiar to some of you. Lipscomb was a great preacher and teacher and the editor of the Gospel Advocate paper for a half a century from the 1860s on up into the 19-teens. The Advocate was published in Nashville, Tennessee in an area that was absolutely decimated by the Civil War. There were many who were suffering, people who were hungry, people who were homeless, disease was rampant, there were orphans. And in the June 1867 issue of The Advocate, Lipscomb wrote about receiving gifts from people, from brethren all over the country. And then he printed a question from a Brother Rogers in Missouri. I still have in my hands an amount of money for the South. Had I better send Bibles or bread? Stop there, because I know some people today who would say, absolutely Bibles. That's a ridiculous question. To send bread, that's just the social gospel. We can't have that. Should we send Bibles or bread? David Lipscomb said, our response is, as highly as we appreciate the Bible and its necessity to the temporal and spiritual well-being of man, a loaf of bread today in the name of Christ would do more in opening the hearts of our southern people to the reception of the gospel than any number of Bibles, tracts, or preachers. Send bread now, brethren, and afterward the Bibles and the preachers. As has often been said, people will not care how much you know until they know how much you care. There's a more excellent way. It's the way of love. It's the way of Jesus Christ. And if you're not His disciple this morning, I would invite you to become one. God has demonstrated His love toward you. He so loved the world that He sent Christ into it to die for your sins so that you shouldn't be condemned, you shouldn't perish, but you should be saved. And so I encourage you to put your trust in Him and to respond to what God's done in faith and repentance and be buried in baptism and have your sins washed away, be added to His people. Maybe you're here this morning, you already are a Christian, but maybe you haven't lived as you ought. Remember, if we love God, first and foremost, 
will keep His commandments. Maybe you've transgressed those in some way and you need to repent in a public way today. If we can help you in any way this morning, it's the Lord's invitation while we stand and while we sing.